It really is great to be here this morning, and I was really pleased to be asked to talk on the book of James because he has so much to say to us, doesn't he? And I was really pleased to be asked to speak on this particular passage from James 2 this morning. But Tom Wright says, because he's a man that studied Paul for most of his life, that reading Paul gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and then reading James is like having a bucket of cold water poured all over you. He really does, um, it is a bit of a reality check, isn't it, reading James. But one of the reasons I was so pleased to be asked to talk about this particular passage is actually it's been quite contentious historically, um, and it's caused a little bit of disruption in the church, and I was always a fan of trying to work that through. Um, So I'm really keen that we work that through together here this morning. So Martin Luther called the book of James, is there a picture of him? We're going to do, there may be a picture of Martin Luther come on, the, come on at some point. He's a really grumpy looking chap, actually. I think, I think when I've read a little bit more about him, he was quite grumpy. Uh, there he is. I think he's a bit intimidating, personally. Um, but great, great guy, great guy. Um, so Martin Luther called the book of James an epistle of straw, and I will not have it in my Bible. Strong words indeed. Although, to be really clear, actually, what Luther objected to was poor interpretations of the book of James. Um, And the people that took some of these passages that we're about to read out of context, and this is what he says, that's how these fellows do it. They rip out one little phrase from a text and they set it against the whole of scripture. We cannot take the words that we're about to read this morning from James 2 out of, um, out of context, out of the whole of scripture. And I would argue that we should never do that with any phrase. We need to read scripture, just not how it was intended to be interpreted or read. We need to read it as a whole. So let's read together now what got Martin Luther so hot under the collar, shall we? The words brilliantly on the screen for us, so do follow there or um, turn your Bible on or open it, depending on what you have, if you'd like to, like to join me reading in that way. James 2, starting to read at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. 
As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Hard-hitting words. And this morning, I want us to just explore this bit of passage together and then talk a bit bit about the implications for us as Central Church in 2023 here in Edinburgh. So if you're still unsure why these words were so contentious, it's simply this. Martin Luther was a medieval monk and he was stuck in a time of great corruption in the church. A time when church leaders, um, well, they used religion, really, to intimidate and control people, to behave in a certain way, to control the masses, if you like. And that left them feeling that they had to earn their salvation. They had to work. The whole thing was really unhelpful. The whole thing was superstitious. People were even led to believe they could buy forgiveness because of some corrupt leaders in the church at the time. And so Martin Luther, in that environment, had this earth-shattering epiphany that we are saved by faith alone. By faith alone in Jesus, through God's grace to us, right? This very simply sparked reform in the church, or the Reformation, and the rest, as they say, is history. So anything that smacked Um, For Martin Luther, anything that smacked to the fact that we have to earn our way, that faith is not enough, earn our way into salvation, into our identity as Christians, got Martin Luther pretty het up, and really understandably so. But as I said at the beginning, what really upset Luther was poor or weak interpretations of this passage, lazy interpretations that left people captive to their sin, that left them in a state of striving or trying harder to earn God's love. And also, I'd like to be clear that as far as I am aware, no church has ever taught that we can earn our salvation. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that every bishop or priest on the ground in the 16th century or that any church leader since has got this right at all. I'm not saying that, but, I, I, but no church has taught that we can earn our salvation because we cannot take these words out of context. So what then is the context for James 2 verse 14? What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Well, for a start, the context can be found in verse 1 of this chapter, the very beginning, in fact, of the whole letter to James, not in verse 14. He says, my brothers and sisters as believers in our Lord Jesus, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is the context for the passage. James is writing to Christians, okay? He's writing to Jewish believers. He's not writing a letter to try and evangelize people, to try and get them over a line of commitment to Jesus. These people have met Jesus already. James is helping Christians to understand their identity and tell them that being a Christian is not a thought. It's not simply a thought. He says the demons believe. So what? What's the good of that? Christian means to be a little Christ to look like and behave like Christ. When I married Adrian 28 years ago, I took on the new identity of wife. 
22 years old. I had been a daughter. I had been a student. I hadn't been very much else. I was only 22. But I took on that day the identity of wife. And I'm still learning what it looks like to be a wife. But I realized very quickly that being a wife meant learning to love him, learning what he loved, what he hated. And on the days, and I'm ashamed to say there have been more than one or two, when I've chosen not to love him well, I'm still his wife. Nothing I do on a day-to-day basis, thankfully, can change my identity. But generally, I want my love for him to be more than my thoughts about him, right? Or even my words to him, as important as those are. Now, all analogies break down, but bear with me a minute, just a minute further on this, because I look back to the 6th of August, 1994, beautiful summer's day in the south of England, inside a Norman church, and I took a pen and put it to paper, and I signed my marriage certificate. And I can look at that as the event in time that changed my identity, and we can look to an event in time. We can look to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was an event in time. And nothing can change that, not even on the bad days. But, but we need to work out what this identity looks like. And that's what James is doing for us, isn't it? In this whole letter, our response to God, our response to what Jesus did, needs to be a love response. And what James is saying is... With this new found identity, it will be visible. It can't help but be visible if you've met Jesus. It will show. You won't be perfect, thankfully, thanks to Jesus. We don't need to be perfect. But if you love God, James is saying, let me help you. Let me help you love him. Let me show you what that looks like. If I'm a wife, it will show. I will move into the same home as my husband. I will spend time with him. It can't help but show. That is what James is saying. If you've encountered the love of God, if you believe Jesus died, it will show. So this is not, to be very clear, a challenge to our identity. This is not what James is saying, but he is bringing us challenge. He is bringing us challenge. He's He's challenging us in our love response to God. How do we look more like Christ? The whole letter of James Um, helps us but actually the whole bible helps us with this jesus said the greatest commandment is love the lord your god with your whole heart your whole mind your whole soul strength and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself the second is to love your neighbor as yourself and one of the keys to this passage that we're reading today i think can be found in matthew 25 when jesus said the king will reply truly i tell you Whatever you did for one of the least of these, he was talking about the hungry and the naked and the imprisoned, you did for me. You did for me. In fact, while I was preparing a, a talk um, about this time last year for my, in my role at Edinburgh City Mission, I discovered that somebody with a lot of time and determination Um, has counted that there are over 3,000 references to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, and the sojourner in the Bible. Over 3,000 references. And that, get this, second only to the subject of God 
himself, the poor and the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, are the most talked about subject in the Bible. The most talked about subject in the Bible. And in fact, in Isaiah 58, God through the prophet Isaiah invalidates the prayers and fasting of those who ignore the poor and oppress the weak. And this is what James is reminding us of today in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food and you say, go in peace, warm and well-fed, but do nothing. Just a few verses before in James 1, he said to us, pure undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. You see, from the very beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the letters to the early church, we hear this drum beating consistently, persistently. And I believe that's because it reflects the heartbeat of our creator God. I was so struck when we were singing the song this morning, break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And Jesus' response was one of action. Jesus' response was one of action. Often his action involved stopping, stopping for the one. Jesus repeatedly stopped and he noticed the poor. He honoured the humble, the woman putting her pennies in the temple treasury. He stopped and he honoured her. In Luke 13, Jesus was criticised for not washing his hands by the Pharisees and he said to them, I can almost imagine Jesus setting this up. You want to talk to me about being clean, clean on the inside where it really matters. Chapter 11, verse 41 says, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean with you. These are the words, these are not easy words, these are hard-hitting words from Jesus. And at the start of his ministry in Luke 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads from the scripture, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and those who are oppressed. Today, he says in this place, the scripture is fulfilled. And we see this as Jesus then stepped out and embraced his ministry, don't we? It is indeed fulfilled in every level, on every level, rather, through each and every action of Jesus, including his walk to the cross. And we heard a bit from Tricia this morning, and the, and the stranger or the sojourner is frequently mentioned in the Bible, the for us, the refugee or the asylum seeker, and Jesus doesn't ignore them. His actions, again, are to stop. Stop for the woman at the well, a Samaritan despised by the Jews but Jesus stopped for her and her life was never the same again he stopped in Matthew 15 to heal the son of a Canaanite woman a foreigner in the land of Israel the disciples urged him to send her away but Jesus stops it's so easy isn't it for us to love our neighbor when they look like us when they sound like us when they behave like us But Jesus turns all that thinking on its head, doesn't he? Jesus challenged us to take action at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Orphans and widows frequently talked about because actually they were the most vulnerable category of people in the Bible. No economic means of their own. And Jesus is stopped in his tracks in Luke 
Luke 7, verse 12, by the funeral of a, of a young man described as his mother's only son, and she was a widow. She was absolutely destitute by this situation. Young man, I say to you, get up. Jesus is moved by the hopelessness of this woman's situation. And so, forgive me, there's been a lot of examples, but time and time again we see it in the life of Jesus. Scripture reflects God's heart. And I think it's abundantly clear through the Bible and the living word, Jesus, that if we want to love God, if we want to work out our identity in action, like James is talking about today, this is how we do it. This is the stone in James's shoe. He got it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. Yeah, and I think that it's also really important that, that we understand that this is a process of learning, that we're learning together, that we're learning together to love our families. Do we put, I know I don't always, put my, the needs of my family before myself? Do I love my family well? Do I love my community well? Do I love those on the margins? Well, Jesus, James is saying pretty directly, don't tell me you love God and ignore this stuff. Being a Christian is not just about what you think. I want to finish now. Um, it's brilliant. It's, it's community, the community's fair this morning. I just want to talk a little bit about Central. On our slides today, you will see that it says, loving Edinburgh, being family, following Jesus, and Adele has talked about it. You may also have heard us talk um, about our faith being a triangle and of up, in, and out. There it is, up, in, and out. Our up, our one-to-one -one relationship with Jesus. Our out, our loving Edinburgh, loving other people, and our in, our being family here together. Now, I have heard a few times, and it's really understandable, um, why, why? I, I hear loving Edinburgh being family following Jesus. Why are we putting Jesus last? And maybe it has crossed your mind. It's crossed my, my mind. But I just want us to think about this because honestly, I think it's fundamental. I think it's fundamental. Because if you see the up as the God stuff, the out as the caring for Edinburgh the, or our community sharing our faith and the in is becoming friends within church here together, then you would be, have every right to feel a little bit uncertain of the order that we have chosen to make, um, put our vision statement, our mission statement in. However, if you see loving Edinburgh, as I believe James is saying, as the God stuff, Jesus said, remember what you did for the least of these you did for me. If you see that loving Edinburgh is absolutely fundamental to our worship, Isaiah 58 kind of worship, the fasting that God requires. And that this is what also what people outside of our church will see. And if you see being family as establishing God's kingdom on earth, as the building of a spiritual community to welcome people and a place to worship, and as the following Jesus bit actually as the me bit, the learning to be a disciple, spending times on my knees with my Bible app, my rooted app, whatever it is, you, my journal, whatever it is you do to spend time with 
God on a daily basis, establishing what worship looks like for you, you will see that each of these is of equal importance. And of course, Jesus did this perfectly. We look to Jesus for the up, the in and the out. And of course, we can't do loving Edinburgh and being family unless we start in that secret place with Jesus. Of course, it all has to flow from that, and we see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? But it's not the end goal. It's not where we stay. It's not where Jesus stayed. And more to the point, as I say, it's not what um, people will see when they look at church. But most importantly, I want to say this morning that these are all the God stuff. There is nothing less godly about loving Edinburgh Quite the contrary, according to the Bible and according to James. And no matter which way up we turn our triangle, Jesus comes out on top. Jesus is the motivation. Jesus is our focus. I can thank my son for making it do that. (laughs) And I think the trouble is that we've been really good as church over the centuries to focus on one or maybe two of these things. And it can become become really lopsided and it's really understandable. So at Central, we we purposely make Loving Edinburgh our organising principle because it's too easy for us to stay in the up. It's too comfortable for us to stay in our secret place and just focus on that. So we flip it. But it's all the God's stuff. So to finish, as has already been said a number of times today, as central we love to gather to worship. We also love to scatter, to love Edinburgh, and our communities are a wonderful way that we can respond to this. James's call to action to be scattered as a people of God throughout our city.